You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is from the book of Joshua, chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Then Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and spent the night there. The king of Jericho was told, Some Israelites have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have only come to search out the whole land. But the woman took the two men and hid them. Then she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when it was time to close the gate at dark, the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you can overtake them. She had, however, brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men pursued them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. As soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before they went to sleep, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that dread of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no courage left in any of us because of you. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, since I have dealt kindly with you, swear to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal kindly with my family. Give me a sign of good faith that you will spare my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. The men said to her, our life for yours. If you do not tell this business of ours, then we will deal kindly and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us the land. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Forefront. It's great to be with you all again. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Mira Solani Joyner, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. I was the former community pastor at Forefront Brooklyn before my family and I moved to Washington, D.C. about two years ago. Some of you might know that I have three daughters. My youngest, her name is Misha. And Misha tells me all the time how much she misses her friends from Brooklyn. Thankfully, she's been able to keep in touch with with some of them, with her friends from school, with her cousins, and even with Danielle from Kid Stuff. And she's been able to do that by video chatting on Messenger or on FaceTime. And it's been really sweet. I've titled this morning's sermon, Hashtag No Filter, 
because of something Misha does when she video calls her friends. You see, conversations between seven-year-olds are pretty funny because they don't actually have conversations. All Misha does when she calls her friends is she plays with the different filters on my phone. So here she is talking to my niece down there with a purple shirt and my brother in Hong Kong all with this filter on. I joke with her and I say, what are you gonna do, Misha, when it's time to face the world and people are gonna see that you aren't as cute as the anime character filter that you use and that you don't really have purple hair? That's her with a lot of disturbing amount of makeup on. Most of us didn't have all that fun stuff when we were younger. The most that we could do with our phones at least for me, was when they changed from rotary to the ones with the buttons, the most we could do was play happy birthday with the tones on the numbers. When you, the tones that the numbers made when you press them, did anyone do that or was it just me? I didn't have filters on my phone to play with when I was that age, but I did have to deal with a different kind of filter. See, I was born in Hong Kong. My mother is from the Philippines and my dad Indian. And I learned from a really young age that there were different filters that you needed to put on depending on where you were. So like at home, you could act a fool, but never in public. In public, your mother expected you to be extra polite and well-behaved. Otherwise, she'd give you the look. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. As I got older, I noticed the need to put on different filters depending on who I was around. So my speech was different when I was around my mother or my mother or my Filipino friends. And again, different when I was in school or different when my dad had company over or different again when I was around church folks. Now I'm not talking about just being more polite. I mean, using a completely different style of speech, different vernacular altogether, sometimes switching in and out of English, even talking about specific topics. Now I did this a lot so that the people that I was talking to could see me as part of the group. Some of you might know this as code switching. This is a common practice for many POC when they move between spaces as minoritized people. So although I'd switch in and out of filters to fit in and to belong, there was a filter that others would put on me that I had no control over. Now it didn't matter how I spoke, how I dressed or carried myself or what I said, I could never shake this filter. Whether I lived in Hong Kong or here in the United States, the filter followed me everywhere and would be colored by stereotypes and tropes unless someone actually took the time to really get to know me before getting to know that I'm a mother or that I hate the cold or ask what books I love to read. When people met me for the first time, the filter in which they could see me through is as a Filipina. And now, that might not mean a whole lot in the US, but in Hong Kong, it did. Because the most common stereotype of Filipinos is that the only reason you could be living in Hong Kong is if you were working as a maid or a domestic helper. If you were out at night enjoying a drink with a friend, 
because maids and helpers don't typically go out for drinks, the second most common stereotype was that you were probably a prostitute or an entertainer. And if you were neither, the third most common stereotype is that you were a gold digger, looking for some rich foreign guy to marry you so you could have a better life. These stereotypes followed me to the US, where people love to ask how Mike, my husband, a Marine in the military, met me, a Filipina who lived on the other side of the world. And I hated being asked this seemingly innocent question because I knew the common assumption was that he probably met me while he was deployed and that I probably saw him as my ticket to a better life in the US. If not, I suspected they probably thought I was a mail order bride he met on Craigslist. Now I'm not knocking anyone whose lived experience is exactly what I described. I'm not knocking domestic helpers or sex workers. The issue that I'm pointing to is that these stereotypes and tropes often meant that Filipino women were treated as second-class citizens, as less than, and their worth diminished. I would experience this when I was working as a teacher in Hong Kong, and people had a really hard time conceiving how it is that it was possible for a Filipina in Hong Kong to have a teaching degree. I would experience this when being propositioned at a bar, not for my number or anything like that, but for what my rate for the evening would be. This filter even affected my experience going through immigration in the US when I'd come to visit Mike. I had to remember not to say that I was visiting my boyfriend because otherwise I would be questioned three times longer than anyone else about what my job was back home or if I had a return ticket and enough funds to last me my stay. The filter in which others saw me as a Filipina meant that whether I was seven, 12, 16, or 21 years old, or working as a teacher, a personal trainer, or even as a minister today, I was not safe from a man's inappropriate, uninvited touch or conversation. The filter that many people would see me through, regardless of what I was doing or what context I was in, was that of an exotic Asian woman. Our friend Rahab, whom we read about earlier, also recognized that she was seen through a filter that she too could never shake. This filter relegated her to living in the outer wall of the city as an innkeeper, as some translations state. There was an assumption that if she lived outside the city walls and was providing lodging for travelers, that she was probably offering other services as well. Even the king knew that anyone passing through would likely make a stop at a lodging where they could have additional needs met. So when Joshua's spies arrived, Rahab already knew what they were looking for, already knew what services they needed. She had also already heard that Joshua's army had succeeded in conquering neighboring nations and were on a mission to, con to conquer the land of Canaan. 
She also knew what these armies did when they would invade land, that they would destroy everything and everyone, keeping only the women and livestock as spoils. She knew that because she and her family lived on the outer wall of the city, which is down here, that in battle, they would be hit first. She knew that the outer wall existed. The very reason the outer wall existed was to protect the city, which stood up here in the inner wall, inside the safety and the, con the confines of the inner wall. She knew that protecting the city would be the king's top priority. And so she knew that she and her family didn't stand a chance of survival unless she could convince Joshua's spies to spare their lives. So what she does next is she concocts a plan in which she hides the spies on the roof of her inn and diverts the king's men out of the city in the opposite direction of where the spies would find retreat. After doing that, she enacts the second part of her plan, which is to take advantage of the fact that these men only viewed her as a harlot who would meet their physical needs. And so she uses it to her advantage and begins buttering them up. She begins speaking to them using language of war and plunder, saying that they were such brave and powerful men and that everyone was scared of them. She flatters them further, saying their superior God has so much favor on them that he hands over entire nations to them for them to colonize and claim as their own. And then when she believes that she's sufficiently stroked their egos or other things, she asks them to spare her and her family since she had hidden them from the king's men. I imagine they strike a deal with her where she provides them insider info about how big the king's army is and what weapons and war strategies they would use. And so because the spies believe they've gotten the best bang for their buck, no pun intended, they seal the deal to spare Rahab and her family. I imagine that after the men had left that Rahab turns to her family and tells them the news that Joshua's army were planning to invade the city of Jericho, but that she had worked hard and secured their safety. I imagine she starts working hard to prepare for the army's invasion, making the red cord that would serve as a signal to the army to avoid attacking her home. I imagine that she's scared, gambling with their lives this way. She's emotionally exhausted, but knows that this might likely be their only chance at a better life, where she wouldn't be treated as a second-class citizen, where they could all live amongst this new community, where they would be embraced instead of being pushed to the outer fringes of society. I imagine she might have been hopeful that within this new community, people wouldn't look at her, take one look at her and just see harlot, but they would see neighbor and maybe, maybe even friend. And what happens in the following chapters is that Joshua's army does go on to, con to conquer the land of Jericho and completely destroy everything in it. Rahab and her family are safe from that destruction and continue to live alongside the Israelites. And friends, it is this part of the story where Every other pastor who has preached 
a message about Rahab and Joshua 2 will say that she took a leap of faith when she recognized God's people and acted with courage in keeping the spies safe. And because of that, because of her faith and courage, she and her family were saved from destruction. This is where pastors will tell you that this is good news and end the sermon there and call it a Sunday. But I'm not going to do that. Because, you know, honestly, I don't know if this story is about Rahab acting courageously and bravely. Because what I see here is a story about a marginalized woman who was stuck between a rock and a hard place. A marginalized woman who knew that the people of Jericho wouldn't think twice about leaving her to perish during an invasion. A marginalized woman who knew her only chance at survival in a community that treated her as second class was to cozy up to the enemy in the hopes that not only would her life be spared, but that she would be able to live together with the ancient Israelites, assimilate to their culture and worship their God and that maybe, just maybe, she might have a chance to live a new life and finally know what it means to belong to a community. And friends, colonizing nations depend on placing the most vulnerable between a rock and a hard place to get what they want, which is land, resources, and women. This happened then, it happened in the lives of native Filipinos before the Spanish occupation and then later with the US and it happens today. Filipino women were viewed merely as trophies of war to satisfy men's sexual appetites then and that same perception of Asian women as merely commodities for men to consume still continues today as Asian women are viewed as their sexual fantasies, their submissive wives, their nurses to answer at their every beck and call, their lives reduced to entertainment or domestic care. The media's portrayal of Asian women only supports this view when the news reports a shooting at a massage parlor or an Asian spy, and everyone assumes that sex was a service also offered. And so a man having a hard day can't possibly be charged with a hate crime. What they are really saying is violence against women, against women who are sex workers, particularly against Asian women, is justified. The most heartbreaking part for me in this story with our friend Rahab occurs later in the book after Joshua's army successfully invades the city of Jericho. The next time we hear of Rahab is in Joshua 6, 17, where it says, Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers we sent. You see, Rahab and her family do get to live amongst the ancient Israelites in this new civilization that they are building. But she doesn't get the fresh start she was hoping for, because in this passage, 
she is still only remembered as Rahab the prostitute. So her life might have been spared, but even in this new community, she doesn't escape the filter that her previous community placed on her, viewing her as a harlot. To this new community, she is just another commodity to be consumed. And so she lives as a prostitute for the rest of her life. But the good news is that, is that this isn't the only way that Rahab is remembered in the Bible. God redeems her personhood as well as makes a way for all of God's people to see that even the Canaanites, the people of Jericho, belong to God, not as property, but as God's children together with the ancient Israelites. You see, Joshua's men could not conceive the possibility of claiming a nation and having full authority over it if they allowed the Canaanites to live. The only way forward for them was to wipe everyone out and claim the land of Jericho as their own, taking their women as spoils. But we see, we see that in the end, God's promise extended not only to the people of Israel, but also the Gentiles, and that includes the Canaanites. We see God deliver the good news through the life of Jesus and through his death and resurrection, that God's redemption is for everyone. God's grace is for everyone. God's restoration is for everyone. As we continue to read the Bible, we see God move in Rahab's story too. We see beauty in how she's honored in James 2.25, where Rahab the prostitute is written about as righteous. And in, Re in Hebrews 11.31, Rahab the prostitute is included in a list of acts of faith by God's people. Rahab continues to be remembered as, as the biblical authors keep coming back to how important her role was. But we also see the importance of her story elsewhere, and that is in the gospel narrative. We see Rahab in Matthew 1.5 in Jesus' genealogy. Rahab is listed as one of only four women mentioned in the entire genealogy. She becomes part of the gospel story. She is remembered as being part of bringing the gospel to fruition, literally having a hand in the birth of Jesus Christ by appearing in his genealogy. She is remembered in Jesus's lineage as simply Rahab, without any filters that preconceive her worth. She is remembered as mother of Boaz, an ancestor of Jesus the Messiah. So looking back at the story we read from Joshua 2, Rahab's experience reminds me of how the world views Filipino women and Asian women as second-class citizens, unworthy of true inclusion and belonging. It reminds me of the experience of Filipino women working hard all over the world as overseas Filipino workers to secure the safety and security of their families back home. Rahab appears to me in Asian women who are expected to be submissive and complacent. Rahab appears in the jokes and forms of entertainment that 
dehumanize Asian women. Even my friends who worked as entertainers in Hong Kong to earn money to just provide for their families. Rahab appears in the Asian women and even children whose purposes are reduced to either enacting sexual fantasies or performing back-breaking exploitative labor. The good news that I have to hold on to is that just like Rahab, Filipino women, Asian women and children, Asian people are all God's children, are all image bearers of our Creator God. The good news I have to hold on to is in remembering the qualities of my ancestors and in knowing that Filipino women reflect a unique side of God that teaches us how we can live more compassionately in caring for one another and in caring for this planet. And I remember that when I think of my grandmother and how she cared for her village and think of my mother when she works hard in Hong Kong to send money back home to her family in the Philippines. The good news that I hold on to is when I think about all the incredible Filipino women and Asian women and Asian folks that I meet, that we are all on this earth co-creating with God, imagining new ways of being, new ways of living. The good news that I have to hold on to is in seeing how Filipino women and Asian people around the world partner with God in so many different ways to bring God's kingdom here on earth to fruition. Just like Rahab, just as Rahab participated in. This is the good news of the gospel of inclusion that both is and is still in completion. When we allow ourselves to remove the filters we have placed on others based on their race, their gender, their sexuality, their disability, their socioeconomic status, and instead see and value the diversity of all of whom God has created. Where we can honor each image bearer, each person as a reflection of who God is, where we can see each person contributes something valuable to the body of humanity, whatever their occupation, where each person can experience belonging without the need for switching filters, depending on who they are, because they are celebrated as their full, whole, authentic selves. This is the good news that we live in today. But now how do we realize it? How do we bring it into reality? How do we live out the good news of inclusion as it pertains to Asian women and all our Asian siblings who experience fetishization and commodification of our bodies? We can start by doing these three things. We do so by educating ourselves about the Asian American and Asian experience. You've heard me say, and probably many others say that, Asians are not a monolith. Our experience in the United States differs from Asian culture to Asian culture. 
It differs depending on whether or not we are recent migrants or spent our childhoods here, or even if our family has lived here for generations. Our experiences vary hugely across class and gender. The experiences of Asian men are completely different and vary in a number of ways. Some experience being emasculated or may even also experience fetishization. It is education, even for me, to read about the different experiences of Asian Americans and Asian American history. This isn't the history that you're taught in schools. So we've really got to make an effort if we, if we want to come to appreciate the diversity and the value that each person brings. Number two, we've got to recognize microaggressions. We've got to recognize when these filters that distort our view of Asian women come into play. Take notice of when Asian women are subjects of sexual jokes, innuendos, or harassment. If it happens in your presence, please say something. Bring the humanity of Asian women to the front and actively resist actions that reduce our personhood. Thirdly, build authentic relationships with the Asian American community. This picture right here is a photo taken in my last or second to last night in Brooklyn when Asian American forefronters came came by to my home to bring me Jollibee for dinner, to support me and the work that I've done in the community and also what I was about to do in Washington, DC. Get to know us as your friends, your neighbors, your grocer. Know our names. Learn to say our names correctly, for goodness sake. Talk to us. We are not invisible. I can't tell you how many times I've met immigrant Asians who say no one makes an effort to get to know them or build a friendship with them. They don't know if it's their accent or just the general assumption that there won't be anything, any common interests. But it's incredibly lonely to move to a different country where no one wants to know you. We're all siblings in Christ. So make an effort to get to know us. Now, before I close, I have a word for my Asian sisters and siblings. Please know that you are not invisible, that you are not someone's fetish. You are not a stereotype. You are not a foreigner. You belong. You belong to this community, to this city, to this nation. You belong to your culture. You belong to your ethnicity. It is time for us to let go of the many filters that we carry around and switch out depending on who we're talking to. It's time to embrace our full selves. It's time to celebrate all the things we love about our culture and let go of the things that we don't, knowing that it doesn't mean that we don't belong. Take time to reclaim those things that you love and let go of what doesn't serve you. Let go of the things that don't honor you or don't honor your fellow siblings. That process is part of the creation work that God invites us to, that God invites us into when we live into the gospel of inclusion. 
It's in being creative in what we want to bring to God's kingdom that is a part of us and a part of our culture. I wanted to close showing this photo right here of three phenomenal Asian American female faith leaders in, in the United States, because it's a rare sight to see Asian American faith leaders, much less Filipina American faith leaders. This is what inclusion looks like. Let's work together to make this a facet of all of society, of all of this nation, where all of us bring something valuable to humanity. And we see that. Let us pray. Dear God, I'm thankful that when you created us, you didn't create us using a cookie cutter, having us all look the same, act the same, having us all have the same talents or gifts. But God, that you purposely created us in very unique ways because you have very unique purposes for us all. That you have very special roles for each one of us. And that in the face of every single person we meet, whether we are Filipina, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Hmong, or Thai, God, whoever we are in every single person's face, we see an image of you and thus a variety, a diversity of, of who, of what encapsulate, encapsulates your character, God. And I thank you, God, for that. I thank you that in seeing all of who we are, of all of who another person is, we can expand our view of you, God. We can expand what it means to be included and to belong. We thank you, God, for that grace that you have with us as we are learning what it means to fully belong to one another and be included. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you Forefront for having me. I hope to see you in person soon or on Facebook Live. Be blessed. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.